Our Father, again we come to Scripture aware of your sovereign working in history, of your great plan of salvation, of the work of Christ as the culmination of that centuries-long program through the nation Israel. We pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the lessons that you have uh, stored away in these great pages of historical scripture. If we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, to once again review where we're coming from, if you'll um, think what we've done, we've, we've looked at the kingdom um, in the Old Testament. We have got up to the point where that kingdom was divided. And we have studied in the past few weeks uh, the patterns of rebellion that uh, the scriptures tell us occurred when the revolution happened in the divided kingdom. Remember that from this time forward in history, there are two kingdoms. And God wanted one faith and two kingdoms. But thanks to Jeroboam, it turned out to be two kingdoms with two different faiths, two different cultuses, two different places of worship, two different patterns of worship. And the pattern really broke down. And we studied the revolt with a rejection by the north of the Davidic dynasty, the rejection by the north section of the temple, the rejection of the Levitical priesthood, the rejection of the scriptures. So it's a study of sin inside the kingdom of God. We're not here talking about confronting the external world. We're not talking about Egypt. We're not talking about uh, the people in the land during the holy wars and that kind of thing. But what we're talking about is how God, the great king, ruled his kingdom. And so tonight, um, we come down to reviewing just for a moment the two models of leadership of this kingdom. And we're doing this because we were trying to isolate what went wrong with, with the kingdom here. And we're going to prepare for the next chapter when we start talking about the prophets. And we get into, um, in a quick way, with the notes that are passed out tonight, you'll see for next time, we start working the period of history uh, just prior to the fall of the North Kingdom and the, and the Southern Kingdom. Just to get dates. So you can kind of fix this in your mind as far as timelines go. Here's the timeline. 1440, Exodus. Uh, We have the time of Moses, the conquest of the land. Uh, David, roughly a thousand. And the two important dates coming up, and there are two of them, is the collapse of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the collapse of the southern kingdom, Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, the magic number is 721 B.C. and the magic number for Judah is 586 B.C. Those are very important dates in the Old Testament. That is the last of the northern kingdom as it was known in history and it was the last of the southern kingdom. And there was a restoration, there was an exile period and so on. We'll get get into all that. But right now, what we're trying to do is we're looking at the spiritual decay that preceded these two dates. And it was during this period that a lot of Scripture was written. Because if you just open your Bible to the Old Testament, 
you've got all the minor prophets, you've got the major prophets, and these guys were all active in this period. So the question is, what were these prophets doing? What was going on spiritually here? Here, God had chosen a nation, had provided the assets to survive history, and yet people turned against him. Not everyone, but by and large, the nation turned against the great king. So we, that's what we're looking at. We're trying to hone our understanding of what went wrong because the things which are written in the Old Testament are written and really what we're trying to do here is understand a little bit more about sin and how it works in our life. So the first thing we want to do tonight is we want to review the two leadership models of the kingdom. The Saul model and the David model. And then we want to study how God chastens because we always try to go from a, 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 an event of history to a doctrine that we learn from that event. And the doctrine that we're learning here is not one usually taught in, in, in many conservative evangelical churches, and that is how God spanks his children. And we ought to know that, because the problem with it is we can be spanked and be under chastisement, not even recognized. So that's why we want to look at these things. Not morbid curiosity, it's just to understand the ways of our God. Um, the thing, the center piece of it all, if you'll turn in the Old Testament now to 1 Samuel chapter 12, there are, there are several key passages um, in the Old Testament in this period of time. One of them, of course, was 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 was the chapter that revealed the mode and the threat of the kingdom. In other words, 1 Samuel 8 uh, had, it was one of the great political documents of all time. Never taught, of course, in school, because uh, we can't bring the Bible into school, we might contaminate something. Um, but in 1 Samuel chapter 8 uh, is really the guts of God's viewpoint of centralized power. It's a prophecy, it's a statement, a declaration that has always happened, it will always happen again. Whether it's a pagan country or whether it's Israel, the principles are always the same, that fallen man entrusted with total power becomes a tyrant. And in 1 Samuel 12, there was the Samuel's um, farewell address to the nation. And he wanted uh, to pass on to his generation warnings and admonitions about how to control the monarchy. Samuel was a prophet, and in the next chapter we're going to get into next week, we're going to see the rise of this new class of people. We've had priests, we've had kings, and we've seen the prophets begin to pop up. We saw Samuel pop up. We saw Nathan come up. We saw Elijah come up. We could have seen Elisha, but we didn't have time to deal with him. But we're starting to see these prophets pop up, and we're going to see much more of them come on the scene. And we want to say, what, what are the prophets doing here? What's their role in history? Well, Samuel is kind of the father of these prophets. 
And it's very important that we understand that he is terribly concerned about this institution of monarchy. There's a tension going on in the Old Testament between the prophets and the kings. It's almost like there's two offices in collision here. Um, it's, it's very much like what we see in our country right now in the rivalry, and it's a profound rivalry, between the legislative branch of our government and the judicial branch. On the one hand, we have Congress entrusted by the Constitution to write law. On the other hand, we have the courts effectively taking over the role of the co Congress and writing its law, doing it indirectly through court decisions, of course. So there's, the, there's a rivalry, the tension between two parts of government. Well, it, there, there's this tension between the prophets and the kings. And the point is that in, in chapter 12, verse 19 through 25, we just want to review that a moment. These are Samuel's going away words, his farewell address, warning the nation about the danger of the monarchy. It was not a panacea to their problems. They wanted a king like all the other nations, wanted to be like everybody else. And he's telling them, you better watch it. You, you've brought a Trojan horse in here, and I want you to understand what, what the consequences are. Then all the people said to Samuel, pray, because he's, he's, just, he's just convinced them that they sin when they ask for the monarchy. So now, they, people come, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so we may not die, for we have added to our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. So there you have it, right in the prophetic books. It was not God's will at that point in history, it's not his direct will, to bring up the monarchy. God accommodated to the request of the people. And the story of what went on between 1000 B.C. and these dates is the tragic story of the failure of the monarchy and what was going on with that office and the men who were attempting to run that office. But here, in a nutshell, way back in 1 Samuel 12, because this passage you're looking at right now precedes all the other stuff that's going on. This is, this is ahead of the game, before it starts. And Samuel tells him, okay, you've got to manage the problem now. He said, you've sinned, and God has answered your prayer. This is one of those terrible um, kind of prayers that you don't want answered. They're foolish prayers, and God answers foolish prayers, if for no other reason to teach us how foolish the prayer was. And so here Samuel is saying, you guys prayed this prayer, you wanted this to happen. You, you wanted your way. So God said, okay, I'm going to do it your way. Now, here are the consequences. You've got to learn to manage this. So here, here's this older man in retirement. He's going to die shortly. And he's passing his best and greatest teaching to the people. And here's what he says. Do not fear. You have committed this evil. So he's saying, now we're in category two suffering. You shall reap what you sow. So you're going to start reaping what you've sown, but don't fear, don't panic. You've got to learn to handle it. You can't, un you can't erase it. This is not like a video cassette where you can go back and re-erase history. And how often have we all learned that in our lives? You can't relive your life. You always think about, gee, if I knew back then what I know now, boy, would my life have been different. Well, you, but you can't go back. And so, this is what he's saying. 
don't fear, you have committed the evil, but don't turn aside from following the Lord, serve the Lord with all your heart. There's a way to manage it. Even though you have added burdens inherited by category two type suffering, you still can manage. And that's what he's doing. It gets back to the same basic principle. And you must not turn aside and go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile or they're vain. Notice the implication here. Anything outside of the Lord, His Word, and His promises are considered to be vain. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. Verse 22 asserts the primacy of the Abrahamic covenant. So what he's saying is, whether you have a Saul or whether you have a David, overlying this whole thing is the election, the, the, cho- the choosing of God of the Israelite nation. That is his choice. And nobody is going to change it. And including the Israelites aren't going to change it. The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. It doesn't say the Lord will not account it. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the Lord will not abandon his people because they're so good. There's nothing in here about how good or how bad the nation is. What is in here is that he has his reputation and he has chosen it and it is his plan and he's not asking for a vote. Moreover, as for me... Far be it from me, I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Now, verse 24 and 25 is a summary of every single chapter from this point in the Old Testament on to the end of 2 Kings. You can just circle these two verses because these capitulate all of history. For 300 coming years of history, it is a playing out of these principles. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For, and then he gives the basis of it. For, consider what great things He has done for you. Now, what does he mean by this? Why does he say that that is it? Notice he does not say, sit there and meditate in the law day and night, even though that's God's God's, uh, will. He says, by way of conclusion, that you want to remember the great things that God has done for you. What are the great things that God has done for you? It gets back to our framework again. We have to know these great events. There's no getting around them. They're there. They're always there. And we are commanded to repetitively remember these things. God is the creator. He is the one who we rebelled against at the fall. God is the one who judged this planet through the flood. God is the one who made a covenant with the entire human race, all races, named so on, with his covenant. He is the God who chose Israel. He said that with Israel I call a counterculture into a historical existence through the doctrines of election, justification, and faith. I am the one who calls them out from Egypt with judgment, salvation, and blood atonement. I am the one who reveals my law to that nation at Mount Sinai through revelation, inspiration, and canonicity. I am the one who advances them in history and holy war the picture of sanctification, I am the one who provides a messianic model of leadership. These are all the things that God has done for them and they are to remember the things that God has done for them. That's the motive. You'll notice in verse 24, look carefully at the logic of this. If we can capture the logic of verse 24, you've really aced the Old Testament. 
Because there are people that read the Old Testament that still haven't got the big picture here. The big picture in the Old Testament is that men were saved by faith. They were sanctified by faith. They were never saved by the law. And they were never sanctified by the law. The Old Testament saints operated the same way the New Testament saints operate. There is no difference. No difference in the plan of salvation. No difference in the broad principles of sanctification. What's different is the content of what we know of God's plan and some of the operating assets that he's, he's entrusted with the church, which he didn't in Israel. But again, the logic of verse 24. Fear the Lord or respect his authority. Serve him in truth with all your heart. For, consider what great things he has done for you. That's to be the motive. Where do we get our drive, our energy, and our motivation? It isn't by trying to be good. That's the result. That's the fruit. The drive and the energy come from beholding our God at work. That's the source of the motivation. And you see, this is why it's so terribly lethal to be stupid as far as the scriptures are concerned. Because if you don't know the word of God, you can't, you can't even get to first base. There's nothing for you there. How do you know what God has done for you if you don't see what he's done for you through the scriptures? So the scriptures become essential. But if you still do wickedly, notice in verse 25, he says, you and your king will be swept away. In 721, they were swept away in the north. In 586, they were swept away in the south. They did wickedly. They did not listen. Let's also review for just a few minutes where the kings sinned. What did their sin look like? So we can identify the same thing in our lives when it shows its ugly head. Let's turn to uh, Saul, because Saul becomes a model here. We covered this a little bit last time, but we just want to review because we want to move on tonight to a point of doctrine. And it hinges on understanding what is going on wrong with these guys. What wrong thing are they doing? 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. I want you to notice what happens here. This is the Saul model. Saul is going to be followed by Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and Ahab. Those are the kings that we study. Many other men, but those are the ones we study. They all walk in Saul's footsteps. Well, what is Saul doing wrong? Verse 8. Now, Saul waited seven days. Oh, let's, let's back up. Let's back up one verse. Some of the Hebrews cross the Jordan. See, he's waiting to deal with... Uh, a big war is about to start. Verse 5. And so... They, they, they see they've got a, themselves in a big problem. In verse 6, they're starting to hide in the caves. What's happening to Saul? Just put yourself in Saul's viewpoint here. See if you can feel the pressure. You're supposed to lead your nation out into battle, and you're outnumbered, outgunned, people are getting discouraged, and now the people that are, quote, behind you, yeah, they're behind you. Give me a pair of binoculars so I can keep them in sight. And so they're all leaving, peeling out one after another. So what is that doing to Saul? You see, the issue here isn't some morality issue. The here issue isn't some flagrant sin that we would, you know, big social sin here. It's more subtle than that. Sin comes in subtle forms. And that's why the scriptures are so important to look for, to, to train us in this recognition. Verse 7 gives the tip. 
Some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. They were going across the river. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. So now we've got a morale problem. The people are not trusting the Lord. Their eyes are not on the Lord. Their eyes are on the Philistines. And now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Saul, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. It's a kind of continuous action. They're leaking. His army is leaking. Group after group is defecting. And every time he comes up and he takes roll call every day, we got less reporting for duty. This is not a cool situation for a leader to be in. And so the pressure comes upon him to do something. Now watch sin. Watch how sin stings us. The pressure, is it real? You betcha it's real. Is this a bona fide crisis? You betcha it's a bona fide crisis. Is the pressure on him? Yes, it is. But what is he doing? So Saul said, verse 9, here's the sin. Let's reconstruct his process. He says, bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now think of what he just did. He had been told by the prophet Samuel how to be a king. One of the things you don't do as a king is you don't become a priest. Now David sort of drifted into this in a little bit, but that's because it was after Melchizedek, not Aaronic. But as far as the Aaronic priesthood of the defined in the Torah... The king had no business messing with that office. It wasn't his office. He's out of line here. Why did he step over the line in verse 9? It sounds like a very innocent thing. He's tired of waiting. You know, Samuel's late. What's the pressure? The pressure is, if Samuel doesn't get here and something doesn't happen, this whole thing's going to go down the drain. What is Saul forgetting? Who installed him as king? The Lord. Who is guaranteeing the security of the nation? The Lord. And because on the basis of the appearance of circumstances, Saul begins, and here's the subtlety of sin, which we want to understand, it's the psychology of it. He is reinterpreting those circumstances according to the flesh. He is, t- he is moving from a position of trusting the Lord over to a position of the autonomous man going to solve all my problems my way. I got control of the situation. God isn't obviously doing anything, so I'm going to do something. I'll show him. Yeah, you'll show him all right. Big show. And so Saul failed. He failed in chapter 13, and then he pulled the same stunt in chapter 15, if you'll turn there for a moment. Again, just to see where sin starts. In verse of, of chapter 15, verse 7, Saul wins this time another war. This is the war with the Amalekites. He really defeated them. So now it's not before the battle. This is after the battle. So he's in a position of victory. The pressure is not on. See, in chapter 13, it was sin under pressure. In chapter 15, it's sin under prosperity. So whether it's adversity or prosperity, we still can, can fall into this way of thinking and this rebellion. So here he's being prospered. He's just defeated everybody. No sweat. But in verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. 
and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they destroyed those things. Now, what are they doing? What were the terms of holy war? Remember, what was the one term of holy war? Total annihilation. Why was that? Because it was God's war. And God said, I want this stuff destroyed. But you see, what they're thinking is, golly, look at this. I mean, we forget sheep, oxen, fatlings, and lambs. These are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of economic assets. Oh, now we see the deal. Why can't we spare those? And the things that aren't useful, we're going to throw those out. We're going to make a big show of being very obedient to the Word of God where it doesn't count. But when it comes down to the bottom line, then we're going to just reconsider this business of obeying the Word of God thing. So here is a picture of how the sin takes over in these guys' lives. They will not when they face either with adversity or whether they're faced with prosperity, they are not paying attention to what God said for them. In this case, it's very clear, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, uh, chapter 20, gives you the policies of war. You're supposed to carry those out. And he doesn't. So that's the Saul model. And of course, we studied that. We studied Ahab. We studied Jeroboam. We've studied all these men and we've come to the conclusion that in every one of their cases, these kings sinned at the point of the crises of being leaders. When they were faced with a little pressure or a lot of pressure or sometimes with prosperity, they chose to be in charge. I am. I am in the sense of the flesh. I am the one with the knowledge of good and evil. I will determine what is right and what is wrong, and we will interpret the Word of God underneath that authority. So it's me first, and then the Word of God. And that simply, folks, is what sin's all about. And that's what led to the downfall of this nation. But I want you to notice again, the initial sin has nothing that we would see connected with the great social sins. It is more subtle than that. It goes back to who is Lord. And what is my ultimate authority? Am I going to do this? Am I deciding it? Or am I letting the Word of God decide it? That's the issue. So, we come back to this, this, this issue. And we, of course, last time we looked at Elijah and the rise of these prophets. Now, if you'll turn in your notes to page 33, I want to quote from Second Maccabees. Because we're going to start moving now into this doctrine of chastening. Part of sanctification is the pressure that God brings upon us in suffering. There's a, there's a passage I have, because most of us don't have Second Maccabees um, in our Bible, uh, unless we have the Septuagint version. Um, but I wanted you to see this quote. Second Maccabees was written, very interesting book, it was written just prior to the time of Jesus. And it's very important for scholars because it tells us the thinking of the world at the time of Jesus. That's why Second Maccabees is important. Um, if Jesus says things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, and we know from Maccabees that to their ears, the kingdom meant a physical kingdom, and Jesus doesn't make any 
any uh, disclaimer, then what do we do when we say the kingdom of God is at hand? We interpret that phrase the way the people would have understood it in the time of Jesus, namely, they're looking for a physical kingdom. Yeah. It's spiritual, but it's also physical in the land of Israel. That's what they're looking for. That's what Jesus and John announced. They rejected the king, and so the the kingdom got postponed. But the kingdom offer was the Old Testament kingdom being offered by John the Baptist and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, 2 Maccabees gives us a lot of insight into the thinking. And this passage, I quote from 2 Maccabees 6, is is a reflection upon Jewish heritage and how they felt. You know, often we in the Christian church think about election, the doctrine of election, as some sort of a a prideful generating thing. Oh, I am chosen. But if you look carefully at the Bible, being chosen means being chosen for a destiny that might not just be all that great sometimes. It might be being chosen to suffer for the Lord. It might have some very undesirable characteristics to it. So here's a meditation on it. Not to let the impious alone for long, but to punish them immediately is a sign of great kindness. For in the case of the other nations, the Lord waits patiently to punish them, talking about the pagans now, until they have reached the full measure of their sins. But he does not deal in this way with us, the Jewish nation. He does not deal this way, in this way with us, in order that he might not take vengeance on us afterward when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us. Though he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people. Now, that is a very biblical statement. That's learned the hard way through history. Now, before we go over to the chart on suffering, if you turn the page, I try to summarize this in the italicized statement on the top of page 34. His elect instruments must arrive in shape for eternal fellowship with him by whatever pain it takes to get there. That's what election means biblically. Okay? So it's not just riding a smooth train to glory. God is going to get us in shape for eternity by whatever means it takes. That's why I love to use the word... The, the, the example of a marine boot camp. When that DI looks at you and he tells you that in X number of weeks you will be a marine. You sort of understand that, yeah, I guess I will be. And you kind of have this fleeting feeling that it is not going to be an enjoyable experience getting there. But you somehow have all the confidence that you will get there. Because somebody's right behind you. Right? Well, that's very akin to the way God works with his people. And we've gotten away from that in the Christian church. We've got this idea that we just kind of float into the kingdom of heaven. And anytime anybody experiences some suffering or setbacks, it's a big crisis and people fall apart and wonder whether they're saved or not. Well, actually, the scriptures are quite reversed. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, if you're suffering, be glad. Because that proves that he's spanking you. Proves who's the father. 
be very concerned if you can sin, get away with it, and never feel any adversity, chastisement, or something else. Now you've got a real problem. The Bible says you better check out your lineage. So, this was ex expressed very well in a film, famous, famous play, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And I always remember this one scene where everything was bad was happening to this lead character. And he was, he was always talking to God and always talking to God. And the scene comes up where he's sitting there and he's contemplating all this suffering. He says, God, will you choose someone else once in a while? That's a biblical sense of what it means to be chosen. Because God has his plan. It is a very serious plan. God, as we've said, has, has a plan for history that includes the elimination of evil. This is a very, very serious operation that's going on in history. God is going to exterminate and separate the good from the evil. Only if you are a Bible-believing Christian do you have this hope. Nobody else has. Everybody else, the pagan world, is down the bottom line here. They have absolutely no hope uh, for, for themselves that... Let's get something on top of this. That, uh, that evil and good are going to be separated. It's a, it's a weird, hopeless, sick view of the world. In the Bible, we have, once again, creation to the fall when the good, the entire universe was good. There was no evil. Then we have, after the fall, good and evil are mixed. Well, the pagan thinks good and evil are going to be mixed forever backwards and forever forwards. There's never a separation. The Bible says that history is coming to a climax and good and evil are going to be separated. And so it's the preparation for that great event as God works through our lives that he has that goal in mind. And this is why it is painful at times, while there is suffering at times. And we don't have the explanation of why is this suffering here and that suffering over there. We don't know. But we know this. And we know our God loves us. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness to us over the centuries. And so therefore we trust that he has a method in his madness. But we don't know all the details. Now, to help us in this, we want to hold a place on page 34 and turn back to page 30, and I want you to see some ways of analyzing this. The prophets are going to do this in the kingdom. They're going to come, and they're going to address the nation. And they're going to explain to the nation why this nation is suffering. And they're going to go through some of these categories of suffering. Not all of them. New Testament goes into a lot more, actually, reasons for suffering in the Old Testament. But if you look on the left column, those are patterns of suffering that are directly and clearly related to a sin. The patterns on the right side are not directly related to personal sin. And they're the ones that hurt an awful lot because they, they're, it's like they're floating. And there's no, you can confess your sin from now until you're blue in the face, and it doesn't remove any of those sufferings on the right. The Lord Jesus suffered at least under category 9, could have under 8 because of that passage in Hebrews where he learned obedience to the sufferings. He certainly suffered in category 10, and he obviously suffered category 11. So the Lord Jesus Christ suffered all those things. Now, we, in turn, because we're in Adam, we suffer one, the very fact that we're all dying, that we're all capitally punished, one way or another, 
And so that's under category one, we, right from the start. This starts with the fall. By our identity with Adam, we suffer category one type suffering. We're in an environment that's fallen. That's part of our destiny in Adam. We all suffer category two. This is self-induced misery. Most of our suffering is this. It's Galatians 6. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Don't sow corn and get beans. It's always what we sow, we reap. And so that's the effect of personal sin. And so category two is going to be endemic to the kingdom of Judah, endemic to the kingdom of Israel. Most of the wars, the suffering, the death, the sorrow, the plagues, the misfortunes, the adversities, in this historical period are category two sufferings. They are what the people have sowed. They are also reaping. And we want to look at that because God doesn't remove that in every case. Category three. This is also another thing. And some people, this strikes people as unfair. Category three type suffering. Because someone's a nitwit in the group that you're in, you suffer. Fall out with it because you're identified in the institution with it. If the nation's kings failed, the people suffer. Think how many guys lost their lives in battlefields in the Old Testament because some jerk led them into a war that they shouldn't have been in. Think of that. Think of how many mothers lost their sons. Totally useless. Totally wasted. Category three suffering. Sorry. Category four. Horrible of all sufferings. Eternal sufferings in hell in the lake of fire. Revelation 22. Category five suffering. The fatherly chastening of believers. Now, category five suffering is what David went into. And we want to watch the difference between David now, and this is, where, this is the doctrine that we want to watch. Let's compare David and the others. David sinned. At the point of his sin, he inherited category two suffering. Why? Because he'd murdered one of his top army officers. He'd taken his wife. Now he has three or four wives. Now you have to fall out of a polygamous marriage. You have rivalry between his children because one is this mother and one's that mother and they're trying to live in the same house. And so there's inherent rivalry in that family. goes on for a generation. He's going to sit by and watch four of his sons die tragically. And he's just suffering, 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 suffering. Why? Category two suffering. Because of his sin. Now, he also suffered category five suffering. But only for a short time. Let's turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 12. We want to fix this in our minds because this, isn't, this is what didn't happen in the rest of the nation. Nathan comes to him. Notice the prophet. See, here's the role of the prophet and the king again. Nathan comes to David. David has sinned, and David is out of it. He's out of fellowship. So, he is going to be chastened by Nathan. So, Nathan comes to him, and Nathan tells him the story, and in verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12, Nathan identifies David as the object of the story. David realizes. He, he goes through the thing. He says, verse 8, I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel, the house of Judah. If that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord? By doing evil in his sight. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the sons of Amnon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your life. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives from before your eyes and I'm going to give your wives to other men. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. They're going to do it right out in public. Indeed, you did it. See, in fact, one of those men, in verse 11, that took David's wives or one of his sons. You did it secretly. I'm going to do it before all of Israel. I'm going to do it right under the sun where everybody can watch. Then in verse 13, David said, now this is one of the great moments in history showing a man who responds to God's grace. David isn't in category 5 suffering longer than verse whatever from the time he sinned with Bathsheba until this verse. And he cuts it off. He confesses his sin. He admits it to David, I've sinned against the Lord. doesn't say against Nathan. It says, I've sinned against the Lord. The Lord is, and, then, and immediately Nathan says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. And then he announces in verse 14, there will be suffering, David, but it's not because you're unforgiven. Uh, forgiveness happened then. It terminated category 5 suffering. Now category 2 suffering continues, but not category 5 suffering. David, in other words, quickly responded to the prophet who called him. Within an hour. Maybe this is only a day or two. We don't know how much the time is. So let's say it's two days. 48 hours. That's all. And David responded. Did David have a problem the rest of his life? Sure he had a problem because now he had a whole set of new problems, category two problems, added to his normal problems. Just piled up. But still we know that he slugged it out trusted the Lord to work and manage through the pile because he kept writing the Psalms. And you can trace his growth, you can trace his response, you can trace his fellowship with the Lord through the glorious Psalms, one after another. So we know David's doing great. Now, it's not looking great from the outside, but as far as the Lord's concerned, David's in fellowship and managing quite well. Now let's watch what happened to the other guys. The other guy's sin, we saw it with Ahab. He goes out and marries no less than daughter of one of the great priests of the ancient world, Canaanite apostasy. And so he manages category two suffering and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And he inherits category five suffering because God's blasting him with a famine. He's, he's hitting them with military defeat. So he gets all these things. And here comes Elisha. And Elisha's trying to do as a prophet... Elisha's trying to do to Ahab what Nathan did to David. He said, hey, whoa, guys, pay attention. Look what you're doing here. Think, what's happening? And, of course, he made the issue with Ahab, but Ahab kind of was a clod and uh, let his wife run his life for him. And then he went on and got right back into the groove because what he did, he turned right around and after he did repent for a short time, he spent about as much time in fellowship as David's been out of fellowship. It's almost a reverse character. And so then he goes on and keeps on inheriting the mass, gets finally killed in battle, and then his wife gets thrown to the dogs, Jezebel. So this is a failure here. 
And the tragedy is that you can line these kings up one after another. Here's king number one, king number two. You can count them all. This guy keeps adding the pile. They pass on the burden. So this king passes on one problem. This king passes on the first problem and passes on his own added to it. And every king adds his own problems. So you get after about ten kings and the pile is getting pretty big. And it would take a super David to manage it. It's getting totally out of hand. Because sin is compounded with category two suffering. Category two suffering for this guy. Category two suffering for this guy. So here we have category two. And because everybody's in the same nation, it's category three also. So it's suffering, 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 suffering. And the prophets keep going after this and after this and after this. Read Isaiah. If you can, just pick Isaiah chapter one and two to read. Pick out at random a chapter out of Jeremiah. Pick out one of the small guys, you know, Obadiah or Joel. Pick out one of those guys and just look at the constant over and over. You wonder, well, gee, did anybody listen? Over and over and over, they kept faithfully teaching the Word of God, faithfully teaching the Word of God, faithfully teaching the Word of God. People kept rejecting the Word of God, rejecting the Word of God, ignoring the Word of God, ignoring the Word of God. And finally, in 721, God said, okay, you know, I haven't got your attention yet. Try this one on. And he brought in the, one of the most horrible groups in history, the Assyrians. Their idea of a ball was to spread eagle somebody out on the ground, peel their skin off. That's how the Assyrians treated their prisoners. And these are the people that came in and arrogantly decided that they were going to conquer Israel uh, just like they conquered everybody else. And there's an exciting story of how God dealt with them one night and wiped out about ten divisions of their soldiers. Remember, back when we studied David, we said you could summarize what David did by conviction of sin, confession of sin, and restoration. And we said that what God does here in the conviction of sin is not some religious hokey thing. It's just convicting of sin means the same thing as being convinced of sin. It's a convincing so that you can confess genuinely. You can't confess something if it's, it's, if it's amorphous. And this is one way, by the way, just a practical, uh, practical living kind of piece of advice. This is the way you can spot when the evil one's speaking to you versus when God speaks to you. When the evil one wants to get you, he can use guilt. But every time he does it, it will be sort of a detached guilt. It's kind of a floating cloud that isn't really defined. You can't get a handle. Just feel guilty about something. Something's not right. If that's from the Lord, you know what you do? You have a right to do this. See if there be any wicked way in me. It's in the Psalms. And you pray that the Lord show you the reason for the cloud. And if there's no specific answer to that kind of prayer, then that's not from the Lord. That's just flack that you're getting. You ignore it. You're under the blood of Christ. Christ has forgiven you. And you move on until such time as the Holy Spirit brings to mind a specific point of conviction. That's the key, and that's always a signal of the Holy Spirit working versus the evil one working. Well, the conviction can't happen, I mean, the confession can't happen until the conviction takes place. Because I can't confess what I do not know. Well, the problem now, we're going to push it one more step backwards. What do I need to be convicted? What do I need to be convinced of sin? 
I need to hear God talking. Suppose, however, I'm like Ahab, and I've absorbed, I've been in, out of it so long, that now I've begun to drift, and I've got another problem. Now I go back to the basic chart of all charts. Now what's happened? The longer I stay in disobedience, and I think I mentioned this on page um, 34. You turn to page 34. First major paragraph. If you'll follow with me there, follow my line of thought, because it's, it's a really important point about what's being added now to the conviction of sin issue. The first major paragraph on page 34. Why must there be such pain in divine chastening? Unbelief and disobedience damage our souls. When we fail to respond to circumstances by looking to the Lord and trusting Him to support, guide, and empower us to meet those circumstances, our flesh immediately stores up the sinful behavior pattern. Next time, it becomes easier. It is like the sequence of unbelieving kings in Israel who keep increasing the sin of the nation by adding one scheme on top of another. We train our flesh in unrighteousness just as we train it for any other activity in life. We're always training ourselves. The second time you sin the same way is a lot easier than the first time you sin because the, the, the barrier is down, the conscience has been offended, and the roadway is slicker. And the third time it's easier, and the fourth time it's easier, and it becomes habitual. And that's the sin damage. We are training our flesh. Eventually our flesh could become so well trained in our specific sinful behavior that our behavior would become a life-dominating problem like it was before regeneration. We could then be labeled as a thief or adulterer or covetous person. As the Lord's elect, notice this, we are not permitted to sink back into the world with such damage to our souls and spirits. He will not permit that to happen. That's why there's painful chastening. To correct the situation is a painful enterprise. It is not a simple matter to stop sinning. The flesh can't stop sinning by itself. Addiction. Think of addiction. Any addiction. And you've got a picture of the flesh. The motive to obey God's will cannot come from an independent spirit because the independent spirit would take pride in what I did. I got rid of my addiction by my sheer willpower. No. That's not glorifying God, and that's, he's not going to let that happen. And that's why most addictions don't get rid of, because there is no willpower. In the Old Testament, the motive to obey the law was never the law itself. Israel was called to remember the words and works of the Lord, the exodus, the giving of the law, the conquest, the various prophecies to individuals, and focus on his character, not the sin, God. Israel was called back to the election, justification, and faith of Abraham. The Abrahamic and Davidic covenants were to form the content of their faith. Only by first trusting could they eventually behave. It was not obey and then trust. It was trust and then obey. Always the same sequence. Therefore, to awaken us, and if you'll follow me carefully, sentence by sentence in here, I'm leading to the major point tonight in this new, new thing I want to add to this chart. To awaken us from the compounded carnality, God must first shock us into looking once again at Him.
If we don't go back to Abrahamic faith and his promises, we can never be restored to fellowship and empowerment for obedience. Think of that chart that we showed last time when we went back through and we said, remember the history of Israel. And we went back into the history of Israel and we said, what came first, law or faith? What was the basis of Abraham? Faith. So what is he always going to call it? What is the basis of modus operandi of this nation? The law wasn't given until later. The modus operandi of obeying this is trusting the Lord. Having a personal faith in Him. And that's why trusting the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven. How else am I going to trust Him? If I'm sitting here thinking, gee, God's going to get me because of my sin, I'm not trusting Him. I'm running from Him. So I have to have that, that forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ in order to have any faith. And then it's the motive, because he has saved me, because he loves me, because I know he's for me, I can get through this somehow. I don't know how, but I can get through it. I know that. Why? Because I'm so great? No. Because I know that's the pattern of the God I know. That's the pattern of the Creator I know. That's the pattern of the Savior I know. That's how he works. And I have enough confidence in him. I don't have confidence in me. I have confidence in him to work that way. And therefore, I can face the situation. So, that's the idea. But suppose you don't have that faith. Now we're back to this diagram again. And what happens, if you'll follow now in this, in this bottom of page 34, Jeroboam and Ahab deliberately imported pagan idolatries based on the old continuity of being ideal. The continuity of being, which is just a broad way of labeling all pagan faith, the continuity of being arises every time man attempts to think with a mind of flesh. Now, please underline this next part. It's very critical. When he attempts to be the final judge of what is true and false, the satanic temptation in the garden to be as God is knowing both good and evil. It is the fallen soul's attempt to be the ultimate classifier of everything, including God himself. And that's why, over here, on the continuity of being, you've got nature, the gods and men, all classified under the auspices of the human mind. The human mind is so great that it's even classifying God. And that's the source. Whether it's Baalism, whether it's Ashtart, whether it's Venus, whether it's Jupiter, whatever the idolatry is, whether it's cosmic evolution of our own gen modern generation, it's always we, in our great intellects, are defining the universe. We are saying, God is like this, because I say so. Now, that's bottom line. And what happens, you always want to trace something to its ultimate conclusion. See, that's what always reveals the satanic motives in these things. Where does this idea lead you if you pursue it far enough? Right down to the bottom. Because if God is himself part of the universe and trapped in there like we are, we're all victims. Who are we responsible to? Nothing. Nobody. We're all victims in this mysterious void called the cosmos. That's where it all ends. It ends very conveniently. And that's why we say in the next paragraph on page 35, there is more to this fleshly pagan continuity of being idea than meets the eye. Observe that it accomplishes two goals. One, man is established as the ultimate standard and determiner of reality. That satisfies our craving for autonomy. And two, man is freed from ultimate responsibility. That satisfies the fear of guilt. 
And we can say there are many variations in this. Now, the church fathers, and I quote down there a passage from Milton's Paradise Lost. John Milton's one of those great authors who probably isn't being studied too much today. It requires more than a three-minute tension span to perceive what he's doing. But in his book, Paradise Lost, John Milton, who, by the way, you know what he was? He was the minister of education under Cromwell when the Puritans took over England. If you want a great video, get the one um, on, uh, on uh, Cromwell. Um, I think well, a copy of it's in the church library. We went through it one summer here. It was a great time in England when the Puritans had enough. And the Christians all got together and they said, this stuff has gone on long enough. So they took over Parliament and seized control of one arm of the government. And the king decided he was going to come in and corrupt everything, so they put him out, excommunicated him, and killed him, and took over the nation. And during those years, everybody hates it. I mean, all historians in classroom, they always give you this negative idea that Puritans are nasty people. Yeah, they were. You see in this film where they came into battle singing hymns to Jesus Christ, because they were predestined to kill everybody. I mean, you see people come out, they were religious fanatics on the battlefield. Cromwell was the first guy in military history to ever train an army, apart from the Romans. Cromwell took volunteers, non-paid people, and he trained them into an army, and he himself never had any military training. And where he got it? Went to the library. But he had it up here. And he trained an army that was so fearsome that they were called Ironsides. And while... Cromwell ruled England. Nobody, including the Germans and the French or anybody else running around Europe, dared to strike England because they couldn't believe that these fanatical Puritans were in control of this nation. Madmen were controlling England. Well, during that time, the man who was the minister of education was this guy, John Milton. And he, in this section of Paradise Lost, reiterates a belief of the ancient church fathers that these... This doctrine of continuity, of whatever form it takes, is actually a demonic spirit that slips this idea into our heads. Not only that, but they believed that the particular forms of the idols were actually shapes of demons that manifested to these people in dreams. It's an old, old belief in church history. And so Milton, in the, if you read this passage, and you have to read it out loud to get the full story of it, but the last three lines, and to demons or devils to adore for deities, then were they known to men by various names and various idols through the heathen world. So the Christian position on this is that there's demonic strongholds. And when we're in compound carnality, we can't react like David did because we have this distortion of the nature of God. So we introduce now this next section, and this is what's going on with the prophets in Israel. It's this top row that characterizes the ministry of the prophets of the Old Testament period. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to bring about conviction of sin, but the way they're doing it isn't preaching against particular sins. They're attacking the whole concept of God. That's why Isaiah is so theocentric. They're like Elisha. They go after the Baalism. They ridicule the gods. They dare the gods to come out at them. And so we summarize this, this, uh, this preliminary, because this is a preliminary. They can't get to where David was 
because there's so much sin compounded, they've got to cut through all of it. And that's what Isaiah's doing. That's what Joel's doing. Divine chastening is the destruction of mental strongholds and demonic idolatries to clear the vision of who God really is. See, that's the danger of habitual sin, is we become vacuum cleaners. We suck up all this stuff out of the world system. And it's sitting there contaminating our souls, making our spirits uh, impotent, and all of it's in there. And it's got to be, God has to come through His Word, like He did in the Old Testament, and cut through that, because if He doesn't, we can't, can't genuinely, we can go through motions, but you can't genuinely confess sin if you're not seeing the God who defines sin. And you've got to get there. It's like the Gospel. I can't believe I, I'm a sinner unless I believe I'm a creature of the God who defines a sin. The Gospel, what is it? God is God, and therefore He sets up the sin. I know now, by His standard, I'm a sinner. What's the solution? God's solution, the atonement through the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. Not going to church, not going through rituals. It's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His finished work on the cross. I had nothing to do with it. He did it all. But the point is, I can't get there apart from the first step. And that's the issue of the prophets. They're going to bang away at this thing for 300 years, over and over and over and over. It's a massive spiritual conflict going on between pagan ideas, demonically agitated and empowered, slipping into the minds of people that are sinning and sinning and sinning, making these strongholds ever stronger in their heads. And then on the other hand, the godly prophets banging away at this over and over, assaulting them, going after the spiritual warfare. So that's what's going to happen. And the doctrine of divine chastening can be summarized this way, that until we, this breakthrough occurs, Category 5 suffering keeps on going. Because God will not permit His elect people to go damage themselves irreparably. There will come ways that he has, and some of them are very rough ways of dealing with us until he gets us looking at him. This is not a nice thing, but in a way it's a loving thing. Because God cares enough to do this for us. He could say the heck with it. You know, go to hell. That's what he could say, right? But he doesn't. Because he's chosen us, and as the apostles say and the prophets say, he's chosen us with his own reputation on the line. That's what it means. He has chosen us for his name's sake. We could translate that in our language as he's got his own reputation on the line. He went out on the limb, so to speak, by saying, I'm going to redeem this person, this person, this person, this person. Satan's saying, yeah, 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 I believe that. No, I'm going to redeem him. You watch. Oh, I don't believe it. You couldn't redeem that one. You watch. I'm going to redeem it right out from under you, Satan. Right out from under you. So that's the battle going on, and that's the thing now. In the next chapter, we're going to deal with this divine chastening procedure when this stuff, this first box, this divine chastening gets very intense. It's going to intensify as we move from the chapter we're in to the next chapter. Father, we thank you for a loving parentage. We thank you that you do protect us and care for your people, that you love, enough, you love us enough to pursue us and to see that we arrive safely in your presence. We thank you that you have preserved all these illustrations down through history, that we can sit here tonight 
and learn them, and learn them ahead of time. So when the time comes and the day arrives that we have to use this truth, we will have been exposed to it and know that you too are in control, that you are there on, behind every one of these adversities, every one of the circumstances. It's your rod of love that reigns. We thank you now through our Savior's Amen. So he keeps after it. keeps after the program. You're right. Um, the heart of God is revealed through the prophets, and there are some very poignant passages, powerful passages in the prophets. Uh, in fact, the, the prophets actually take on the, the persona of God often when they're making their prophecies. There's that close identification. Um, a good example of this, to, to force a prophet to walk in the footsteps of God, is the command he gave to Hosea, to go marry a woman that would become an adulteress and a prostitute. That way, Hosea, you will understand how I feel about this nation. Now, how's that one for a nice calling? And Hosea had to do that. And he had to live through that. He had to experience the emotions and the heartache that, that comes from that. And that made Hosea the prophet, see? It, it, it shaped, it was a, a piece of pottery that God was shaping in history. And Hosea could be his vehicle because Hosea managed that. I mean, some of the other guys had bizarre experiences. If you read Ezekiel, I mean, you really want something weird, go read Ezekiel. Uh, God put these guys through the ringer so that they could adequately communicate. You have other men, uh, for example, uh, one of the prophets. I'm encouraging you to read the minor prophets in the notes that were handed out tonight. Um, there are two kinds of prophets, the minor prophets and the major prophets. You all know the major ones. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are the big guys, big, thick books. And the little guys like Obadiah and Joel, and they're the books that you just kind of zip through and never even know they're in the Bible. Oh, and occasionally you hear the name. But each one of those men are an individual. And what's so fascinating, and this is one of the great proofs uh, or evidences of the inspiration of Scripture, is that these men came from different backgrounds. They sometimes were contemporaneous and hardly show any manifestation. They knew each other, doing their own thing. Uh, some of them very reluctantly. The prophet Jonah is a good example. He hated his job, didn't want to do it. God told him to move east, and he went west. Um, just totally, totally out of it that way. And then he winds up going in and having, and what was so disagreeable to him as a Jew was to go into this nation of, of the Assyrians that were so vicious, so cruel. I mean, these people, Saddam Hussein, you know, he, we think he's weird, but he actually stands in a tradition. Um, what Saddam Hussein is doing and how he acts and behaves is considered a normal uh, for that area of the East. That's how rulers rule. They shoot their family when they get out of line or you know, kill their sons. Um, this is just the way of life. It strikes us as odd, but not to them. So here Jonah is forced to go and, and evangelize the capital city of these people. And he wants them all to go to hell. So, you know, why should I bother and give the word of God to those people? You know, let them rot. And that's his attitude, and he expresses it. So, what's so neat is you see the normal, everyday human emotions are there, and yet God's working through it. So, if you want some um, 
if you don't get lost in history, the problem you're going to have reading these prophets is you wonder, well, gee, I have to read this with a map. Probably. And the, the reason you have to read with a map is because these guys are dealing with the nations that are invading their homeland. They're prophesying about Moab, Amnon, Assyria, Aramea. And you wonder, what is all this? You know what it all is? Think about it for a minute. Every time the prophets are crying out against Assyria, and they're prophesying what Assyria is going to do, what, how does that comfort Israel? Let's ask this question. Why is it comforting, in an ultimate sense, to have the prophets call on judgment from these other nations to, to clobber Israel, and yet that was considered part of a message? Well, the reason is, is because it communicated who was in charge of those nations. Who was moving the furniture globally? God was. So the God of this little nation Israel would never permit his people to get a truncated view of who he was. But God of Israel, through the prophets, always said, the God of the Assyrians, I am. I call the Assyrians and I put them down. And if you turn in Second Kings toward the end, and you'll find a reference somewhere in there where at 721, prior to 721, the Assyrians come in from the northeast. And there's a passage in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 36 or 37, that parallels 2 Kings. Isaiah and 2 Kings come together right at that point because it's the same kind of history. And you'll see that one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are ready to lay siege to Jerusalem. And the Assyrians do a very stupid thing. They send an ambassador to King Hezekiah. And the guy really screws up because probably God would have let them clobber except for the fact that they made one slip. In their diplomatic note to the king, they added the, ter the, the phrase, as we have done to the nations and their gods, we will do to you and your God. And that was all Hezekiah needed because that produced the theological conflict. And so therefore he went to Isaiah and he's complained. He says, they have demeaned the name of God. Regardless of how bad we're sinning here, they have demeaned the name of God. Reminds you of David going out after Goliath. And he made the theology the issue. And you watch the prophets, how they deal with international intrigue. The Assyrians came against Israel and it obviously over, it was over 185,000 people. I mean, come on. This is a, this is a disaster. And God, God says to Hezekiah, no, you stay in here. We have archaeological references because Sennacherib, who was the king of the time, bragged about, he says in these inscriptions that we have, he says, I have, put, I have captured Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. But strange, on this Assyrian document, there's no, never an account of what he did with Hezekiah. And all of his other his bragamonies, there's always a victory. There's none reported in that Ostraka. And it's because of a very interesting reason. Because the army went to bed at night and they never woke up. When they, the King James in his marvelous way of putting things, and when they woke up, they were dead. Um, the point was 185,000 soldiers died in one night without a sword. And it's one of those little historic events that everybody wants to gloss over and forget about and can't explain it. And the scholars kind of slip and slide all over the place dealing with that text. But something happened. And in one night, the Assyrian problem had been taken care of. And why? 
because they blasphemed the God of Israel. And so you see mighty acts in the prophet. When God wants to flex his muscles, he flexes his muscles. You know, take me on. Go ahead and see what happens, is what he says. So all of these stories are exciting because they're, they're, they hit at the basic theme, who God is. And who is he that reigns? And out of this will come prophecy. At this point, we'll start more and more into the prophecy of what's going to happen in future history. But it didn't start there. It starts because they're trying to minister to people who are trapped in this, in this adversity. Think of the thousands and thousands of believers in the nation who were suffering because they were, they were just being ruled by an idiot. And the, the priesthood had become corrupt. The prophets had become false. And here they are. They're suffering. And so it was to, uh, to deal with suffering and sorrow and heartache, to give hope. That's the context of all the great prophecies of Scripture. We misread prophecy when we kind of look at it like it's uh, God's view of the inquirer or something, about what's going to happen. And that's not the way that it was originally intended. The prophecies of Scripture were to assure, even though the prophecies were written for, to be fulfilled centuries later, they didn't care whether the fulfillment came centuries later. All they cared was that the present was connected to a victorious end. That's what the prophecy does. It's not date setting. It's not doing all that. It's to renew our faith in who God is. So that's the themes of these. Oh, we're going to come up with in the second, second chapter, oh, the third chapter, I guess. In the third chapter. No. Third chapter and the fourth chapter. We'll deal with that. So we're going to deal with the fall of the kingdom. And then we're going to deal with the exile period. And it was this, that, that, that once the kingdom was gone, it's gone. It never comes back in history. Jesus offers the kingdom when he announced through John the Baptist, the kingdom of God is at hand. And had the nation Israel accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, they could have had their kingdom. And that's why when they rejected Christ, in all four Gospels, you know, Jesus preaches in the first part of these Gospels, and then you get halfway through the Gospels and he starts talking in parables and things begin to shift and you wonder, what's going on? And he starts almost like he's talking in code. Well, he does it because he taught explicitly in the first half of all four Gospels. He says, I am the Messiah. You accept me and you'll have your kingdom. And the people say, no, we're not going to accept you. And so he says, okay, then I'm going to call out a remnant and the kingdom of God is going to be postponed. And then finally the climactic time comes in Jerusalem and what does Jesus say? I'm not going to come back here, Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So go ahead, have it your way. So, in one sense, Israel, by its rejection of Jesus Christ, is the impediment to world peace because Jesus will not come again until he is officially welcomed by his nation. And history is just sitting here, the clock's turning until it happens. So anyway, we're going to see more, much more prophecy as time goes on here. Yes, why? Um, were you uh, planning, or, or maybe as a suggestion, uh, a map would really be a useful thing for me in putting together the time frame of where the prophets fit in and so forth. Okay. Okay. All right, good, good suggestion. I'll try to come up with a timeline to show how 
where these prophets stand in relation to each other. It's pretty neat to see that some of them were contemporaries of each other. And uh, they probably stayed in their own little enclaves doing their thing. Kind of an interesting approach. Um, if you don't have time to read any of the prophets, um, for next time, if you read just one chapter, read Isaiah chapter 1, and notice the structure of how it starts, and compare that with what you read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Try to connect Isaiah 1 to Deuteronomy 30 and see if you don't notice something going on there. We'll have to talk about that next time. Um, no more questions? Anybody want comments? This is a part of the Old Testament not usually visited. Everybody knows about Genesis and so on, but people bog down in the kings, and it's too bad we have to go... We could spend two years going through kings because you have to know so much contemporary history. So we're, gonna, we're zipping through, but at least we'll get a, a plan view of what's happening. Okay, we'll see you next week.